we are called to stand firm. First Peter chapter 5 today. First Peter chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 5 through 7. But before we do that, the challenge to humility and trust. We have a picture here. See if you uh, can remember what this was. Anybody remember the name of that thing? The Titanic. You watched the movie, right? That, I'm sure whatever you... The Titanic. The Titanic took 12,000 men about two years to build. It was said of the Titanic, even God himself cannot sink this ship. What a foolish statement. According to some stories... They bypassed the lifeboat drill the morning that the, uh, the voyage began. I don't know the reasoning behind, but many people believe that it was unnecessary anyway, so they could skip it. But at approximately 11.40 that night, the Titanic hit an iceberg and sank. The devastating tragedy of the Titanic, as many people lost their lives, that tragedy reminds us pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. First Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 7, Peter reminds us of the necessity of humility and trust. Follow along as I read First Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 7. It says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Let's pray. Father, as we examine your word this morning, may we be encouraged in Jesus Christ. May we be challenged as we look at the principles that you have for us, Lord, that we would not just gain knowledge, but Lord, that we would apply those principles to be more like Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Humility and trust. In verses 5 and 6, we see the challenge to humility. Humility, not an easy thing, but something that needs to be a foundational characteristic in our life. Look at verses 5 and 6. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Humility, it's often misunderstood. The culture in which Peter wrote considered humility a weakness. And actually our culture can think the same thing. We also can confuse humility with a lack of self-worth. Humility has been well defined as thinking, or not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Peter shares the contrast between humility and pride in these verses. Humility is lowliness of mind and pride is elevating myself. Pride is based upon putting myself in the middle while humility puts others first. Pride is selfish. Humility is selfless. But pride puts us in opposition to God. In Proverbs 16, Solomon lists a list of seven things that God hates. Now, if you say, okay, God doesn't like this, 
God hates this. You probably should maybe be saying, yeah, maybe I should uh, not try to do that. Guess what is number one on that list in Proverbs 16? A proud look. Pride is the foundation of the entrance of sin unto our world and sin in our lives. If you go back to Genesis chapter 3, you see Adam and Eve chose to disobey God and to eat the fruit. Why? Because they wanted to be like God, knowing good and evil. And that pride caused them to disobey. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, it shares three things that lead us to temptation. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Pride puts us in opposition to God. But humility is necessary for our salvation and for our obedience to God. We cannot have salvation without humility. If we think we're going to earn our way to heaven, I'm a pretty good person, we say, well, you know, I'm going to get to the pearly gate and God's going to be standing there or Peter's going to be standing there. By the way, a little wrong theology in that too. But, uh, you know, Peter's going to be standing there and he says, so why should we let you into heaven? You say, well, you know, I've been a pretty good person. Guess what? None of us can meet the standard that God has for us to be saved. It took his sacrifice through his son Jesus Christ dying on the cross. And our only hope is putting our faith in him. And that requires humility. Humbly saying, I can't do it myself. I need your help, God. And repenting and confessing and turning our lives over to him. Humility is necessary for our salvation, for our obedience to God. While pride is the opposite of humility, submission and humility blend together. You'll notice there, it's interesting in those verses, we see that submission is mentioned a couple times. Verse 5, let likewise you younger people submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another. And be clothed with humility, for God resists the pride or proud, but gives grace to the humble. The idea of submission. Submission is not something we like to do, is it? It does not come naturally. I don't think any of you will be going, if you work tomorrow, going to work tomorrow and say, boy, I can't wait for my boss to tell me all the things I need to do. And I can say, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, this is great. Submission. It is difficult. We don't like to submit. We want to be in charge. We want to be in control. And we have to ask ourselves the question, what happens if I submit myself to someone who does not deserve my submission? We have to understand that submission requires risk. I'm willingly putting myself under the authority of another. And God calls us to submit. Now, throughout this letter, 1 Peter, that we've been looking at, 
Many of you think we've been looking at it forever. It hasn't been that long. But as we've been looking at it, Peter refers to submission several times. In chapters 2 and 3, he talks about submission. He talks about submission to our governmental authorities. He talks about submission in the workplace. He talks about submission in the family. But we don't like to think about or live in submission. It does require risk. Now, I'm a little nervous about this because you want people to go away with something each, each time you, you share, and I think this might be the thing that you go away with, but we have a, a picture coming up here on the screen. Isn't that nice? Yeah. Now, actually, that's our dog, Maggie, and how we got Maggie is a, a miraculous story, an incredible story, but, but Maggie... Uh, she had a little bit of trauma in her very early life, evidently. And, and it's interesting, whenever Maggie meets another dog, it could be a dog that's bigger than she is, that's smaller than she is, a dog that she knows and spent a lot of time with, a dog that she meets first, they'll sit there and, and they'll run around, and Maggie lays on her back. Why does she do that? In dog terminology, she is submitting. And it's interesting why they do that. They tell us why they're doing that is, is they're exposing their neck, the area of their life. You see, when animals attack other animals, they go for the neck for the kill. But they're exposing that as they submit themselves to another one, a great risk because they're opening up that dangerous spot. Now, for Maggie, that uh, she does that more than she should, but we don't submit more than we should. We struggle with it. But John, they don't deserve my submission. I mean... Think about it. Some of our leaders, you wonder, what are they thinking or are they thinking? But God calls for us to submit. See, our submission is not based upon the qualifications or the actions, probably better put actions, of the person we're submitting to, but we're doing it as we honor God in his positioning in our lives. Submit. It does not come naturally. Now, Peter begins by challenging the younger people to submit. Why do you think he singles them out? Young people, stick with me here. Okay? Just after this phrase, the next phrase hits everybody else right between the eyes. So, just be patient here. And, and, Again, we don't know all the reasons why, but I think there's two natural reasons why he singles out younger people. In fact, some translations say young men and specify men. In the Greek, it could be used either young men or young people. Why? Well, I think part of it, and probably the main reason, is you go back to the first four verses of chapter 5, what we looked at last week. 
And we was talking about elders and the responsibility of elders. Now, that was a specific group of people, not just all older people in general. It was the leaders of the church, these mature believers that were to lead and the responsibility they had as leaders. And here it's, it's challenging the rest and focusing on those younger to submit to that leadership. Now, each has the responsibility. And what happens in submission is we often say, okay, I'll submit if they deserve it. But it's interesting. God didn't say, okay, you need to submit to your authorities if they make decisions that follow how you believe God's Word is laid out. And obviously, ours don't always do. There's some good, some bad, but we're called to submit. But they have responsibility too in the church. The leaders have the responsibility to guide the church under the direction of God's word and his spirit leading. And we're to work together, we're a team. It's not like they can just go around. In fact, it says, don't, in, in verse 3, don't lord it over them. Speaking to the leaders. Servant leadership. We talked just a little bit about the upside-down pyramid. A leader in a business, it's healthy too. In a church, it's vital that that leader is a servant leader. Lifting up and encouraging the people they lead. But we're to submit. But I also think there's a second reason why he specifically mentions younger people and possibly even clarifies it a little more, narrows it a little more, young men. Now, I no longer consider myself a young man. Every once in a while I think I am, and then I pay for it for a long time. But it's so easy, and I remember it as a young man, and I still struggle with it, by the way, but I'm like, that's a dumb idea. You know, why are they thinking that? I've always got a better idea. And, and it's easy to do that. And, and guess what? You may have a better idea. But God has put us in a position at this point in whatever our situation where we're called upon to submit. Now, I, I tried to make that gentle and I... Uh, And we'll go on, because the very next phrase says, yes, all of you be submissive to one another. We are all called to submit. It's not just for young people. It's for all of us. It, It doesn't, it's not based upon our position. We're all to submit to one another. To put them first. But we can kick back against the command to submit. Brad Bigney uh, shared some reasons why or some things we must understand to truly grasp what submission is. And I think when we grasp what it is, it will help us better submit to one another. We must understand, he says, first of all, that submission was in the Godhead. In John chapter 6, in verse 38, it says, For I, Jesus speaking, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In the Godhead itself, 
There is submission. Jesus Christ submitted himself under the will of the Father. Jesus Christ, God himself, the creator of the universe, submitted to his Father in the, in the Trinity. Holy Spirit also. If you remember Jesus as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing that very soon Judas, his betrayer, was going to bring an, an army of soldiers and he was going to be arrested and he was going to be tried and he was going to be crucified. And guess what he said? Lord, if possible, or Father, if possible, take this from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Submission. Willingly putting myself under the authority of another. We struggle with submission in marriage. And it's interesting in Ephesians chapter 5, and that's the one we usually go to, wives, submit to your husbands in the Lord. Well, before husbands say, yeah, did you get that? Guess what the verse before says? We must all submit to one another. And it has nothing to do with ability. It has nothing to do with importance. It has to do with role in the marriage. And when the husband is a servant leader and the wife is the helpmeet and together they work for the glory of God, the marriage is a picture of Christ in the church, which is what it's called to be. Submission. It, it was in the Godhead. He also says submission exists, existed before the curse. We always think, oh yeah, we have submission because of sin. You know, it made this happen. Guess what? There was submission before the curse. That helps us recognize that it's God, part of God's plan, not just the, the horrible consequence of sin. But submission is also part of God's plan for function and order. God planted in, in government, in the family, in the workplace, in every relationship, there is a function and an order. And finally, submission is to be a way of life for every believer. We are all to submit, as it goes on and says there in verse 6, excuse me, verse 5, that we younger submit to the elder, but let's all submit to one another. We are all called to submit, no matter our position, no matter our standing in life, we are to be people who are submitted. And then he goes on in verse 6 and says, And therefore, submit yourself under the mighty hand of God, or humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, that he may lift you up in due time. But humility, submission, work hand in hand. Humility and pride are opposites. Humility and submission work hand in hand. And humility requires putting others before myself. And that's what God calls me to do. Philippians chapter 2, probably the most familiar passage dealing with humility, with submission, shares this. The first four verses, we'll start with that. It says this, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, and if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy... So Paul is writing Philippians to the church at Philippi. He says, so if you have any of these things, if there's any consolation in Christ... If any comfort of his love, if any fellowship with the work of the Holy Spirit, if any affection and mercy, if God 
shows that in your life? And obviously the answers are, yes, there are all these things. And if there are all those things, he goes on in verse 2. Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. In other words, he was challenging them to work together, to be unified. But notice what he goes on to say in verses 3 and 4. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, pride, but in lowliness of mind. Humility, the definition of humility is lowliness of mind. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. We don't need to be reminded to look out for our own interest. We don't need to be reminded to take care of ourselves, but we're to take care of one another. We're to look for their interests. We're to put them before ourselves. That's hard to do, isn't it? In your marriage, are you putting your spouse first? In your relationships, are you putting that other person first? that friend or acquaintance first, considering their needs. That comes with an attitude of humility, and that's what God calls us to have. But then Paul in Philippians 2 doesn't stop there. He goes on and gives us the ultimate example of humility, and that's Christ himself. Notice, beginning in verse 5, it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. We're to have that same mindset, that same attitude that Christ has. Let's see what the attitude is. Who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Jesus Christ, God himself, did not think it was something to hold on to. That position and the power that came with it. So he did not consider Robert to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And it's interesting, he made himself of no reputation. He came as a servant. He didn't come with pomp and circumstance. He was born in a feeding trough. Remember, as the wise men came, they stopped in Jerusalem first and they checked with the, with the king saying, or the leader, King Herod, saying, well, obviously, you know, this is this newborn king. He's probably in the palace. But no, he was in a little town a few miles away. Now, they came after the first night, so he wasn't still in the feeding trough. But the wise men sought him where he wasn't. They sought him in the pomp and circumstance of the palace. But Jesus was born and lived in the humble circumstance of Bethlehem. He took on the form of a bondservant. You remember bondservant, the idea of that term is that you willingly place yourself under the authority. It's not a forced slavery. It's a willing slavery. Jesus Christ willingly came to this earth and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Jesus Christ, born in humble circumstances, living as a carpenter's son, growing up, but then willing to die the worst possible death of crucifixion. A humiliating death. 
Why? He humbled himself for us. But it doesn't stop there. Beginning in verse 9, it says, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Remember back to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, Why? that he may lift you up in due time. I'm going to humble myself and God will take care of the rest. While Jesus was the ultimate example of humility as he gave his life for us, Satan's character is marked by pride. Satan's desire was power. He wanted to be like God. If you look at the story in Isaiah of of Satan's being cast out of heaven, what was the issue? He wanted to rise above the clouds and he wanted to be like God. He wanted to have the power and authority of God himself. And so he was cast down. Pride controlled Satan's actions. Let's think of it this way. Satan did not deserve anything that he wanted. Jesus deserved everything he gave up. In Micah chapter 6 and verse 8 The prophet Micah gives this synopsis, a nutshell. What does God want of us? If you walk into the boss's office tomorrow morning and they lay out the week and say, okay, you need to do three things this week, you probably should pay attention to the list they give you, to the actions they want you to do. So Micah says, here, this is what God wants. And he lists three things in Micah 6, 8. Notice this. He has shown you, O man, that's God has shown you, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? Here's his list. To do justly, in other words, live a godly life. To love mercy, to be godlike in our mercy and love. And to walk humbly with your God. Humility is necessary for a godly life. Humility is necessary in order to please God. Our natural mind says, what can I do to have others serve me? What pleases me the most? Well, God says, what do they need? What will help them? How can you give yourself to serve others? Humility. Humility and submission. And then comes verse 7. And if you really think about it, I mean, they're all together in that same paragraph. It it seems like that 7 shouldn't go with 5 and 6. In in the flow of the passage there, and I know they they break it up a little bit. In the flow of the passage, it it doesn't seem like it should go. It seems like it's another thing. So, you know, uh, put yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt You in due time, casting all your care on him, for he cares for you. Verse 7. Verse 7 says, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. That term casting was used, and they would do it when they put a saddle on a donkey. You know, they take the saddle and they heave it up over. 
landed on the top. Just, you're throwing it on something or someone. I'm taking my cares and I'm throwing them on another. I'm putting them on Jesus' back. Cares, anxieties, and worry. We're to put all of our discontentment, all of our discouragement, all of our despair, all of our questioning, all of our pain, all of our suffering, all of our trials, and the list could go on and on. All these things that weigh us down, we're to put them on Him. Why? Because He cares for us. Now, oftentimes we say, casting your cares. I missed something there. Did you catch that? What did I miss? Casting your cares on him? Sounds good. I missed all. Casting all your cares. Because here's what happens. If you're anything like me, and I think you are. What happens, there's, there's things where I say, ah, oh, that's just a little thing, I'll take care of that. You know, I'll go to God when it's a big mess. But until then, I'll handle it which basically means I'll be working at making it a big mess and then I'll finally recognize I need to go to God. But, but what happens, it's sort of like take, if you have a backpack and you have one big thing and it's heavy, but what happens is we take the backpack and we just let the little stones build up, all these little things, and pretty soon the backpack weighs as much as the big thing as we let all these little things. But I think another thing, and this goes back to the pride issue, is we say, I can handle it. I don't need God's help. I can take care of this pride. I'm not humbling myself under the mighty hand of God. I'm saying, God, I don't need you. But Peter here says, casting all your cares, all your worry, all your anxiety on him. But we just let the things build up and we sort of look like this. You know, I keep, I keep moving the feet, but I don't seem to get any traction. You ever feel like that? You're probably like this donkey here. But that's what happens. The cares weigh us down, and we get stuck. But God says, I want them. I'll take your cares. I'll take your worries and your anxiety and I'll carry them. And guess what? We can trust Him to do that. We can trust Him because He's powerful enough to do it. And we can trust Him because He cares enough to want to do it. He cares for me. He cares about the big things in my life and He cares about the little things in my life. He cares about it all, and he wants me to throw all those worries, all that anxiety on him. And by the way, worry is sin. Do you know that? So I like to be spiritual and say, I have a concern. <laughs> Sounds better, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's probably the same thought process and attitude. We can trust him. Does it mean it won't be hard? No, not at all. It can be very hard. Does it mean we'll never cry? No, 
We may cry a lot. The circumstance may be incredibly painful. But God is there to take our care. And we can give our pain and our worry and our frustration and our discouragement to Him because He's powerful enough to handle them and, he know, and He's loving enough to desire to take them. Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. It's not going to be on the board. I want you just to listen. You may want to even close your eyes and listen to, to these words of Jesus. It's in the Sermon on the Mount, and He's, and he's sharing these principles of how to live this radically different life. And he shares it through Matthew 5 through 7. In Matthew 6, beginning in verse 5, and just listen carefully to these words as Jesus is encouraging those who are following him. He says, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon, the wealthiest man in all the world of his time, Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. It's interesting, I saw a statistic about worry And basically, out of worry, only 7% of the things you worry about, you really can have an effect on. And I can't remember the exact things, but but some of it, you you worry about things that never are going to happen. Or you worry about things that you can't do anything about. Or you worry about things that are no big deal. But we spend our life worrying. And God says, cast your care on him because he cares for us. In Psalm 55, King David had been betrayed by his son and by his trusted advisor. I believe his advisor's name was Ahathophel, I believe, or something like that. Uh, Poor kid, when he went to kindergarten, had spent a long time learning how to spell that name. But, but this advisor that had been with him through some incredibly difficult times and his own son Absalom. And if you read Psalm 55, in some of the verses, I believe like verses 12 through 14, David is asking the question, why did you betray me? Basically talking about his advisor that that had been his close friend and confidant and advisor for for years, but now turned on him and, and was part of the rebellion led by David's own son Absalom. But David goes through and he pours out his heart and all of those heart-wrenching things that are taking place in his life. But notice what he says in Psalm 55, 22. He shared all the sorrow and heartbreak. But then he stops 
And in verse 22, he says this, Cast your burden on the Lord, and he shall sustain you. He shall never permit the righteous to be moved. In the midst of all the chaos, he stopped. And he remembered. He could take it to God. The righteous will not be moved. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. So you may be here this morning, and maybe you say, oh, I just got a few little stones in the backpack. Things are going well. Just wait. Shortly you may be saying, I just don't seem to have any traction. Or maybe you're here this morning and you feel the weight of the world. And you say, I just don't know how I can make it through. God is faithful. We can trust him. Is the pain real? Absolutely. Will there be hard times? Yes. But God is faithful. And he will not allow the righteous to be moved. King David could say it. Peter could say it. We can say it. But he goes back to verses 5 and 6. You see, we can't really take on the promise of verse 7 if we don't follow the instruction of verse 5 and 6. I must humble myself before God. And I must put others first as I submit to God and his will and submit to others that he puts in my life. And I humbly trust God. And when I do that, I can cast my cares on him. And I know whatever I do, he cares for me. Let's pray. Father, thank you that as almighty God, you you love us more than we can imagine. You love us when we do well. You love us when we mess up. Lord, help us to humbly put ourselves in your care. Help us to be willing to submit as we submit to you and submit to one another. Help us not to be controlled by pride and selfishness. Lord, help us to be known as selfless in giving. And Lord, I am so grateful that in those times when we feel there's no way out, we can be confident knowing that you are a faithful God. Help us to cast all our cares on you. Lord, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.